Well, good morning, everybody. It's such a privilege. After that time of worship, I am so pumped up <laughs> and ready to go. But at the same time, I could sit and worship for another hour and just be. God is so good. Well, we get to continue worship, like he said, like Mark said, as we dive into God's word this morning. And I am deeply excited and expectant for us this morning that our worship will continue and that hopefully that our church will grow closer to Jesus as we dive into this chapter. This morning we're in John chapter 17. I'm so excited because this chapter has been one of the most influential chapters of Scripture that have ever affected my life, that I've ever studied. I think that this chapter has some incredible, incredible truth and hope and promise for God's people and for our church. Up until now, in John's Gospel, if you've been following, we've seen Jesus do go through different stages of the Gospel, of the book and the things that he's done. And in the first eight or so chapters, he's performing miracles and signs and wonders. And after that, he spends time teaching his disciples before he leaves them to go to the cross. And now, in chapter 17, he's going to spend time just praying. And he's going to pray. And as he prays, I think there is a window opening up for us to see into the will of God for our church and for our lives. This prayer is so deep. I have a whole book written on this chapter that I actually borrowed from Phil and Della. I must give it back to you. <laughs> I've had it for a very long time. But this chapter is so deep. And before we dive in, there are a few things that we need to know. Um, this chapter goes into three parts, this prayer of Jesus. And the first, Jesus is going to begin by praying simple truth, but in- incredible truth. He's going to pray, not for anyone else, but for himself in a way. And as he prays for himself, he's going to tell us truth about what eternal life is. And if you remember, the theme verse for this gospel, for this book, is that you would come to, is that these things have been written so that we might believe, and in believing, that we would find life in God. Eternal life. And Jesus is going to pray and give us this deep understanding of eternal life. And then he's going to move on, and he's going to pray for his disciples. And it's incredible. He's going to pray for his disciples. And then he's going to pray for all future generations of the church. This prayer for the future church right at the end is the crown jewel of the passage. And it's built on the foundations of his, of his prayer for himself and for the disciples. And what we're going to learn as we dive in is that his prayer for the disciples is also his prayer for us. And the heart, and my heart for us this morning, is that we would see Jesus' prayer for us. That we would believe it, take hold of it, and we would see it come true in our church and in our lives. And we, we would believe that this prayer really is for us for you and me today. Just remember that John's audience is much later than than the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And so his audience doesn't have all the experience of of being around the early apostles and the amazing things they did. So as Jesus prays, it's actually for John's audience, who is later down the line. And so John puts this prayer in here so they would be encouraged that the same prayer that Jesus prayed for the 11 disciples, he prays for them too. And he's praying it for us today. So we're first going to read Jesus' first prayer in verses 1 to 5. And we're going to draw out some truth there. And then we're going to go into his prayer for the rest of the church. And we're going to draw out two prayers that he prays for us. Prayers for holiness and prayers for unity. 
And we're going to end off with one final promise that Jesus ends the prayer off that pulls the truth straight through the rest of the chapter. And it's going to be amazing to see. Let's get into the first five verses. So long. Jesus begins with this. After saying these things, Jesus looked up to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son so that he can give glory back to you. For you have given him authority over everyone. He gives eternal life to each one you have given him. And this is eternal life. To know the one true God and Jesus Christ, the one you sent to earth. I brought you glory here on earth by completing the work you gave me to do. Now, Father, bring me into the glory that we shared before the world began. Here's the truth that Jesus wants to remind us of as we start this prayer this morning. And that is, eternal life is to know Jesus. In verse 2, he says that he's been given authority to give this eternal life to all of those who belong to him. But then he goes deeper and he tells us what eternal life really is. He reminds us that eternal life is not everlasting life. It's not everlasting existence, but eternal life is everlasting intimacy with God. Eternal life is to know Jesus, to know the one true God and Jesus Christ. I think that we have this idea often that eternal life just means getting into heaven after living a good life on earth so that you can spend eternity in a better place than hell. But that's not true. Here Jesus reminds us that we cannot come to God just to get the benefits of knowing Jesus. We come to God because we want Him. Eternal life is not a reward or a destination holiday. When you think of heaven as just a wonderful place to be, we actually cheapen what Jesus has done on the cross for us. Because Jesus died on the cross to bring us to Himself so that we would have eternal life to know Him we would know him eternally. The new heaven and the new earth one day will be an incredible place. But it will only be incredible because Jesus himself will be there with us. He is the prize. He is the reward. Eternal life is knowing him. If we're coming to church to do good things, hoping to be let off from the bad things that we've done, I think that this gives us a bit of a warning to check our hearts and go, am I here because I want to know Jesus? Or am I here to tick some boxes and to look spiritual? This is a bit of a warning for us, but it's also an incredible, exciting call to come to Jesus, to know him, because eternal life is found in knowing him. And that is the foundation of the rest of this prayer and of John's gospel, in fact. And the rest of the prayer that Jesus prays throughout this chapter is all based on this. And the central call of them is to come to know Jesus. That is the core of John's gospel and is the core of Jesus' prayer here. That's the first thing that I wanted us to take away from this prayer this morning. Now we're going to look at the rest of it. We're going to read a good chunk of scripture, verses 6 to 24. And he's going to pray for his 11 disciples and for us as well. Verses 6 onwards. He says, I have revealed you to the ones that you gave me from this world. They were always yours. You gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything I have is a gift from you. Now he's praying for his disciples. For I have passed on to them the message that you gave me. They accepted it, and they know that I came from you, and they believe you sent me. My prayer is not for the world. 
but for those you have given me, because they belong to you. All who are mine belong to you, and you have given them to me, so they bring me glory. Now I am departing from the world. They are staying in this world, but I am coming to you, Holy Father. You have given me your name. Now protect them by the power of your name, so that they will be united just as we are. During my time here, I protected them by the power of the name you gave me. I guarded them so that not one was lost except the one headed for destruction, as the scriptures foretold. That's Judas. Now I am coming to you. I told them many things while I was with them in this world, so they would be filled with joy. I have given them your word, and the world hates them because they do not belong to the world, just as I do not belong to the world. I am not asking you to take them out of the world, but to keep them safe from the evil one. They do not belong to this world any more than I do. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so that they can be made holy by your truth. I am praying not only for these disciples, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us, so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. Father, I want these whom you have given me to be with me where I am. Then they can, all see, then they can see all the glory you gave me because you loved me even before the world began. Wow. What a vast, deep, stunning prayer for Jesus to pray for us. I really believe that this prayer gives us a picture of Jesus' heart for the church and of what the church will be like. He prays here and he envisions the church that he wants to bring about. So what does that church look like? And there's many things that he prayed for in this chapter, but there's two we're going to look at this morning. The one is holiness. Jesus prays for our holiness. And the other one is unity. He prays for our unity. So let's look at Jesus' prayer for holiness in verse 16 through to 19. He says, let's read the scripture again quickly. He says, they do not belong to this world any more than I do. Speaking about the disciples. Make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. Just as you sent me into the world, I am sending them into the world. And I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them, so that they can be made holy by your truth. What does he mean by holiness? He's praying that they would be made holy. But what does that mean? We're going to look at quickly, what does that mean? We're going to look at two, three things about our holiness that Jesus teaches in this passage. And the first thing is that holiness is being in the world, but set apart for Jesus. When Jesus says, make them holy, he's not just talking about becoming morally good people. We tend to think of holy people as people who are upright, who are righteous and who have good behavior and who live morally upright lives. But that's not what holiness really is. 
Holiness is connected to living in purity and in good morals, of course. But holiness is being in the world but belonging to Jesus. And as Christians and as believers, we are in the world, but we are holy because we do not live and act in conformity to the world. But we live and act in conformity to our King Jesus. That is what it means for us to be holy. We are set apart from the world. We belong to him. In verse 16, he says that we don't belong to the world any more than he does. That's an incredible statement for Jesus to make. Just as Jesus is set apart from the world and is different to the world, so are we set apart and different to the world. That's because we belong to him. Being holy isn't about doing godly things. It's about who we give our allegiance and our love to. Jesus prays that we would be holy, and he bases this prayer off of the fact that we already belong to him. If you are a believer, you are already holy because you belong to Jesus. This is deeply encouraging to me as a person with with sin and with my own problems and struggles, and as an imperfect person who's following Jesus. There is a sense in which we are already holy. We are already set apart. But then Jesus takes holiness a little bit further. And he says, holiness is something that we also grow in. In verse 17, Jesus prays and he says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word, which is truth. He doesn't just pray that we would be made holy. He shows us how that happens in our lives. Holiness is first and foremost belonging to God and being set apart for God but it's also a process of being made more and more like Jesus. He has already said that the disciples belong to him, but he knew that they had a long way to go still in their holiness, in their personal walk with him, and in their Christ-likeness. So he prays for his imperfect disciples, acknowledging that they are his disciples, but they have still to be made more and more holy like Jesus. We are a work in progress. The church is a work in progress. We are all imperfect believers, brothers and sisters in Christ. And with all of our flaws, we are still being made like Jesus. And we will be for the rest of our lives, as long as we're here on earth. And so we are holy in the way that we belong to Jesus, but we are also becoming more holy, he says. In our character, in our desires, in the way that we live our lives, we are being conformed to look and act like Jesus and to be like him. He also shows us how exactly that looks like. And it looks like being washed with the word of God. It looks like living in God's truth, being immersed in truth. Verse 19, sorry, just before that. It says, make them holy by your truth. Teach them your word. Church, the more that we live and immerse ourselves in God's word, the more we become like him. The more we immerse ourselves in the world, the more we become like the world. It's good to be in the world. We are called to be in the world, to be an active part of the world, but we belong to Jesus. And the only hope that we have for being made holy is actually in verse 19. Not only are we being made holy by God's word, but Jesus has made our holiness possible. Verse 19 says, I give myself as a holy sacrifice for them so that they can be made holy by your truth. If Jesus didn't die, we can have God's word but we can't be made holy in the way that he's praying now. 
in his death on the cross, he actually purchased our holiness. He has made it possible to be forgiven for our sin and to be united again with him. Holiness is only ever possible because Jesus has already bought it for us and paid for it. Here, Jesus is painting a picture of what our lives as believers will be like. When we come to faith in Jesus, we are made holy, we are brought into the family of God, and we are adopted into his family. Yet we also begin a journey of becoming more and more like his son, Jesus. And the more we live in God's word, and let God's word change our hearts and our actions, the more holy we become, and the more like Jesus we become. That's the second truth about holiness that he prays here. And the third is this, that our holiness displays Jesus to the world. The third truth about holiness is that it affects how we make disciples. It affects how we witness to people. Notice how Jesus first prays that we'd be made holy. And the very next line is that he's sending his disciples into the world, just as he was sent. He's directly linking his prayer for them to be holy with his desire and mission to send them out. We cannot separate our holiness and our mission to make disciples and to tell people about Jesus. Because we cannot go out into the world and show people who Jesus is if we don't look anything like him. We can't reflect who Jesus is in our character, in our lives, in our hearts. We can't tell people about who he is. And so becoming holy, becoming more and more like Jesus is crucial to witnessing to others around us. If people are going to see Christ in us, we need to be close with him in our personal lives and in our corporate lives as we gather together. And I love that Jesus links our holiness and our mission to be sent to make disciples. I think it helps us understand what he desires his church to be like. And I think there's more pressure than ever for us as a church to look like the world. Brad preached last week on how we will be persecuted for our beliefs and for our values. And so it's easy to give in and to adopt the values of the world and to look nothing like Jesus. And maybe we'll be left alone. But the more we pursue Jesus, the more we become like him, the more the world will reject us. If we truly belong to Jesus, the world will notice. And it won't always be easy, but that is how we make disciples. And that is how we bring other people into God's kingdom. And that's Jesus' prayer for holiness amongst his disciples. There's so much more we could say, but there's more to discover in this prayer. And this prayer for unity for me is the absolute crown jewel of this chapter. After that, Jesus moves on now from praying for his current disciples, and he prays for all future believers, for all of those who will believe in him, he says. And he prays that they would be one. As we were worshiping, I felt an incredible oneness in the spirit as we sang together. And as I could hear everyone's voices behind me, I said, yes, this is what it's like to worship Jesus as one. And it was beautiful. And that's something we need to pursue. But let's get into the rest of chapter 17, verses 20 to 23. Three verses, but there's so much there. Let's read together. It goes on to say, I am praying not only for these disciples, for his eleven, but also for all who will ever believe in me through their message. I pray that they will all be one, just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. And may they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them, and you are in me. 
May they experience such perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them just as much as you love me, or as much as you love me. Wow. There's so much in there. But let's just look at verse 20 again quickly. He says he's praying now not only for these disciples, but for all who will ever believe in his message. Church, I pray that we would be encouraged that everything Jesus prays for here is for us. It really is. His heart was always that it would be for us, that we would take his prayers and believe them. And if Jesus is praying for our holiness, how much more should we not, not run after our holiness and pursue it and pursue him? And if he's praying for our unity, how much hope should we have that we can be one as a church and that we can be unified in Christ? If there was any doubt in John's audience that they could continue the works of Jesus like the apostles did, Jesus removed that doubt here. And I pray this morning he would remove doubt in our lives too. He would remove unbelief. And that we would believe his promises. He shows that whatever he prayed for his disciples, he also prays for us. And every bit of grace and empowerment that he made available to the apostles, he also makes to us. We have the same mission that they did. Let's look at the unity that he prays for in these these verses. We're going to look at uh, what our unity as Christians is and how it's possible. The first thing is that we are invited into the very unity that exists in God. Let's look at verse 21 again. He says, I pray that they will all be one just as you and I are one. As you are in me, Father, and I am in you. May they be in us so that the world will believe that you sent me. What Jesus does here is to compare the unity between us to the unity between him and his heavenly father. This is just an incredible, mind-boggling truth. It will take me years to wrap my head around fully. Maybe I never will. Jesus has already prayed this actually earlier in verse 11, and he repeats it again now for all future generations of the church. And he prays that they would be united with each other, just as he and the father are united and unified. But what does this mean? And what does this look like? Well, in John chapter 5, Jesus gives us a picture of how him and the Father are unified. And it's not going to be on the screen. But he says that the Son can only do what he sees the Father doing. Jesus walked a life of such unity and intimacy with God the Father that everything that he did was what the Father was doing too. The Father and the Son are so united that whatever Jesus does, the Father is also doing And while they are two different persons within our triune God, they are one in their actions toward us and in their will and their desire and their heart and their love. And while the church is made up of vastly different people, we are also called to be one in heart, in mind, and in spirit and in our purpose. There will always be smaller issues that we will disagree on. We are called to pursue obedience to Jesus together to pursue intimacy with Jesus together, to worship him and obey him together with one heart and mind. The unity that exists between God the Son and God the Father and God the Holy Spirit is the same unity that we are invited into through Jesus. We are invited to actually experience it, to live in it. 
Surely there is no greater gift on earth than this. To be invited into the loving relationship between Jesus Christ and, and, and our Heavenly Father. Amen. This personal relationship that Jesus invites us into is meant to be the very source of who we are and of everything that we do. This is meant to be the center of our lives. Deep down, right in the middle of our hearts, it's meant to be our relationship with Jesus. But how is this possible for us? Let's read a little bit more in verses 22 to 23. It says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one as we are one. I am in them and you are in me. May they experience such a perfect unity that the world will know that you sent me and that you love them as much as you love me. The next truth about our unity is that our unity with each other comes through Jesus. You can put that up on the side. Our unity with, other, with each other comes through knowing Jesus. Jesus prays that the, that the church will be one, and then he prays again that the church will be one. But right in between, if you put up the next slide, right in between, Jesus says something interesting. He says, I have given them the glory that you gave me, so that they may be one. So the little scripture sandwich here for you. He prays twice for unity, and in the middle, he says how it's possible. This phrase seems confusing when he says, I have given them the glory that you gave me. But what he means is that Jesus is the way to the Father. Jesus is the one who reveals God the Father to us so that we can know him intimately. The glory that he's given us is the glory of knowing God and being one with him. Note how Jesus prays and says that I am in them and you are in me. That's because Jesus is the way to God the Father. While he is God himself, he is also the doorway into intimacy with God. And if we're going to be united as a church and unified as a church, we each need to be growing in our intimacy with Jesus. That is how we become closer to each other. That's how we become one. We can have as many programs and ministries and Sunday services as we like, but if we aren't seeking Jesus individually, we won't find unity corporately. And if we claim to be close with Jesus, but we don't desire unity with each other, then we're missing out on something. And something isn't right in our hearts. This is a prayer of Jesus for our church, and it needs to be our prayer for our church too, that we would be one. And sometimes it's difficult to be one with each other when you disagree on things. Sometimes it's difficult. But Jesus has made it possible because he is the one who draws us together. When I first came to Connect 10 years ago, 2012, I was quite a lonely kid at that time and I didn't have a community around me like I do now. And I walked into the youth church across the road on a Sunday morning where Rolls was ministering with the teenagers. We used to have our own little church service in there. And I walked in there feeling lonely and rejected, but when I got inside, the people, the young people and the leaders there loved me and welcomed me and embraced me with open arms in a way that I had never, ever experienced before. And I saw how they loved each other, and I saw how they loved me without even knowing who I am or who I was. And this love they had for each other just made me so curious. It made me go, I want what they have. I don't know what it is yet, 
but I want whatever they have that brings them together like this. And so it kept me coming back to church for months and months. And so one day I encountered Jesus powerfully across the road at number 18. And my life changed since then. And for 10 years, I've been following Jesus. And it's all because of the unity of the young people across the road. And even now, when I look at our young people at the moment, I spend a lot of time with them. They have a love for each other that boggles my mind. And it's so wonderful to see. I pray that our church would continue to be like that and to grow in that. And that unity with each other that draws people in and goes, whatever they have, I want it. Because I learned that it was Jesus that brought them together. And so I knew, whoever Jesus is, I need to know him. I need to have him in my life. I need to give my life to him. At the end of verse 23, Jesus prays that we would have such a perfect unity that the world will know. And that's what happened to me. And he says that the world will know that God has loved us as much as he's loved Jesus. That almost sounds blasphemous to say. That God has loved us as much as he's loved Jesus. We are not worthy the same way Jesus is. But the love that God the Father has loved Jesus with is the same love that he has given to us in Christ. We are invited into that loving relationship between God the Father and the Son through Jesus. In Christ, we get to participate in the loving, unified oneness that exists between the Heavenly Father and our Savior. That is the promise in the prayer of Jesus here for us. And he's not just hoping that we'll be unified. He is expecting that we'll be unified. He is making it happen. He is praying so that it will be true. And when Jesus prays something, you can bet that his prayer will be answered. He knows that if we are going to make disciples and display him to the world, we need to be one with each other first. We need to be unified. And our unity rests on knowing Jesus and worshiping him and obeying him together. Alone and corporately when we gather like this. And that is Jesus' prayer in John 17. We're going to end off with one final promise that wraps up this chapter. And it's in verses 25 to 26. The last two verses. He says, O righteous Father, the world doesn't know you, but I do. And these disciples know that you sent me. I have revealed you to them. And I will continue to do so. Then your love for me will be in them, and I will be in them. And the final promise is that Jesus is the one who will continue to bring us closer to God. Right in the beginning, he said that he gives eternal life to all who come to him and to all who have been given to him. And right at the end of the the prayer, he wraps up with, I will continue to give them eternal life. I will continue to help them come closer and closer to me. I will always be praying for my disciples, he says. He ends off the prayer in the same way that he started, with his desire to reveal God to us. He's prayed that we would become more like him. He's prayed that we would become more one with each other. And he's invited us into the relationship that he enjoys with the Father. And now he promises that as we go out into the world, he will keep on bringing us deeper and deeper into our relationship with God. The same holiness, the same unity, and the same intimacy that the disciples had with Jesus is available to us in Jesus.
He offers it to us right now. And the guarantee is that he himself will make sure that we have that that happens and that we get to experience that relationship with him. For as long as we are here on earth, Jesus will be our great high priest, praying for us, interceding for us, and drawing us closer to himself and to greater unity with each other. And that is the prayer of John chapter 17 in a nutshell.